everyone and welcome to Two V's and a Pod with me, Izzy the Vegan. And me, Ben's Vegan Kitchen. In this podcast, we'll walk you through the landscape of veganism through the eyes of two pretty relatable day-to-day vegans. And over the series, we plan on discussing a wide range of topics that you may have pondered upon whilst being vegan or even whilst deciding to take the step. This week, we're speaking to Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor. Gemma has worked in medicine for 17 years and is a senior partner at a family medical practice where she's been working for 12 years. She specialises in plant-based nutrition and has written a book called The Plant Power Doctor, helping encourage people to make more sustainable and healthier choices for your body and mind. It also includes some amazing plant-based recipes as well. Izzy and I are certainly no health experts, so it will be great to chat to someone who really knows what they're talking about. Let's chat to her. So Gemma, it is absolutely lovely to have you on the show today. It's really interesting actually. I put a little question out to my audience on what sort of people they wanted to have on the show. And the first one I had in was a doctor. So it is such a coincidence that we have you on this week. I was convinced it was Izzy writing in her own uh, <laughs> her own little caption things on Instagram. What are they called? Not captions. Uh, uh, questions? <laughs> questionnaires. Question yeah, I don't know yeah, what Ben literally messaged me like was this you laughing face I was like no I promise I didn't set this up it's actually someone asked for this (laughs) I believe you Izzy I believe you (laughs) (laughs) so anyway we start every show by asking our guest what their three course death row meal would be we cannot wait to hear yours what are you having well I was thinking hmm I'm thinking avocado on toast has got to be there because it's just one of my favourites and it's, it is a plant-based staple. And I would like mine with a little bit of Himalayan rock salt sprinkled on top and some Ooh, yes. truffle-flavoured balsamic glaze just on top of that. <gasps> yes. That'd be so nice. <laughs> I love balsamic glaze. I like that because it's like you're thinking about breakfast for a starter as well. I like that. Yeah, exactly. I've got to start it with that. And then my main, oh, well, it's hard because it depends on my mood. And I'm just trying to think, <laughs> what mood would I be in when I'm about to die? I think perhaps, <laughs> perhaps philosophical. So perhaps a Buddha bowl to make me feel more in touch with my spiritual side. Okay. So you're, you're, so you're sticking with the, the, you know, last meal kind of go out how you've lived type of thing. So you're not thinking, oh, all of a sudden I'm going to eat all this like rubbish and junk food. You're keeping, <laughs> you're keeping in touch with what you know and what you love. Well, you know what? You know, I like junk food just as much as the next person, but I'm thinking if I'm just about to leave this earth, then I should probably take food that's of the earth to say goodbye. I love it. I also like that. No one's been that philosophical before. Everyone's just like, oh, <laughs> how much food can I stuff in my face yeah, before, how much food can I get? before I'm like executed or whatever? We haven't actually <laughs> specified, you know, the, the, the way that people the are mode. going to leave. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, we assume it's, it's not going to be pleasant. But yeah, I like that. Well, yeah. So what, what's, what's in the Buddha bowl? What's, what, are we talking grains? We're talking proteins? What are we talking? Well, yeah, I'm talking maybe a bit of tempeh i'll add a bit more of the avocado that's left over from the avocado toast because you don't i don't like waste you know um and yeah some rice and i think probably some beans of some sort i'm thinking uh yeah something like um like a black bean dish maybe a bit of salsa and yeah some seeds 
add in some nuts, why not? Basically, a bit of oil can be anything, really. So, you know, whatever you've got in your fridge, whatever they've got in the executioner's fridge, <laughs> like, pop it in, I'll have that. <laughs> Are you going for dessert as well? I do like, I do like homemade cookies. And I also like fruity things. So, you know, if they have something like... Mm, what what was I thinking? Maybe a lemon tart or a lemon cake, something like that. That would be nice. If it's if it's homemade cookies, it's got to be warm. It's got to be chew, yeah. chewy on the inside and crunchy on the outside. Oh, always. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. What do you think of those choices? I think they sound really fresh. Fresh, well well thought out. I like how you're uh, concerned about what the executioner has in their fridge. Just because, you know, <laughs> you want to make sure that you're not putting anyone out, you know. You're, <laughs> yeah. I think we, Izzy and I did it a couple of weeks ago and it, it was chaos. It was absolute yeah. chaos. It was, we, we were the people who were like, right, how can we force enough food down us so we probably just die from that rather than having to go through. It was a huge contrast to yours, not gonna lie. Like we had like different, we had like different courses within each course. That was mm. not just one meal. Like we went, we went ham, but yours sounds a lot healthier, a lot more balanced, but still delicious. I always find it whenever, I find it funny whenever vegans say we went ham. It's like, vegan ham, make sure, please. <laughs> we went corn ham. Yes. Um, so obviously look, as Izzy said earlier in the show, uh, you know, a lot of people want to hear from someone with uh, a bit more of a, an understanding than uh, her and I, uh, I think that's fair <laughs> to say. We we know a fair uh, amount, but we never, you know, we never come on this show actually recommending people to do things, and uh, you know, we just talk about ourselves and what we like, and you know, I think people want to hear some things from you, you know, some some myths that need busting, um, some common misconceptions about veganism. So the one thing that I really want to ask you first and foremost, which I'm sure. You know, we like to think that a lot of people listening aren't vegan and they haven't quite made the transition over to veganism and they're still thinking about it. And the one thing that I'm sure they'll all say is, where do I get my protein from? Obviously, we well know that there's loads of places, but it would be great to hear from you what you think are the best sort of vegan protein sources and uh, why uh, vegan diets and protein have become such like a, it's like a buzzword, isn't it? Yeah, I think protein has always been a really big deal when it comes to uh, any kind of health messaging, it's strange. Uh, people say, well, you need uh, lots and lots of protein to lose weight. And then they'll say, no, no, you need lots and lots of protein to gain weight. And you think, well, you know, obviously, <laughs> protein are the building blocks for our body, but you can get it from all sorts of places. And it's really interesting to me how it's the first thing that everyone thinks of um, as something that might be a block to being uh, vegan or eating a plant-based diet. And I suppose... You, you guys must have researched this yourselves. You kind of know this already, but all proteins originally came from plants. And I think perhaps where the confusion comes from is you know, in nutrition studies years ago, there used to be this myth that you had to combine plant-based proteins in order to be able to absorb them. And so people would, would worry that they wouldn't be able to get all the proteins that they need unless they made specific combinations of foods. But that's been debunked um, many times. And in fact, what's interesting is that actually, as long as you're eating a well-balanced diet where you've got a variety of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, 
which means, you know, beans, lentils, chickpeas, peas, uh, tofu, tempeh, herbs and spices, nuts and seeds, that you're actually going to be getting an abundance, not only of protein, but of many other nutrients. In fact, every nutrient that you need except B12 and perhaps vitamin D, which we can come on to. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really enduring myth that I would love to be able to say you really don't need to worry about. Yeah, I think that feels right. I think there's so many things, you know, I, I read and maybe you tell me if I'm wrong that, you know, the protein from animals, they are only a protein source because of what they eat. So for example, beef is only got protein in because cows eat grass and the grass is what gives them the protein. Is that right? Well, I think, yeah, basically your herbivorous animal has not had to eat another animal to have protein within them. And it's the same mm -hmm. for us. You know, we, we don't need to eat the muscle from another animal in order to gain protein because they have used their building blocks in their food to make their proteins too. So, I mean, that's a simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah, it seems so obvious when you say it out loud. Yeah. Like it is such a simplistic way of thinking about it, but it just, it's something that everyone gets so confused about. I know, I know they do. And I understand why, because I suppose it's been ingrained in us to think, well, meat for protein. Um, even though there are many cultures over the years that have thrived without it. Um, it's something that I think especially in Western cultures has been really important um, and certainly has been a sign of affluence, I would say, over the years, less so this century and at the latter half of the last century. But I think, you know, in years gone by, even in the UK, even at the turn of the century Victorian era, many people would not have eaten that much meat. They really wouldn't because it would have been inaccessible and un unaffordable. Um, yeah. And they would have had predominantly things like potatoes and rice and vegetables as their staples. Um, and even during the Second World War, um, when you look at rationing, you see that a family of four would have perhaps had one egg a month and one rasher of bacon a month um, between them. So it's it's really a myth that we need to have meat for protein. It's crazy, actually, because I'd never... When you put it before as the animals that we eat don't eat other animals, I'd never actually kind of stop to think about that because you think oh you know the food chain and this is what's happened but I can only really think of lions that I know that eat other things and I know uh, well definitely not here we don't eat lions um, but it's it, no it's it's a, it's a it's a weird way of and actually it's a really sensical way of looking at it on the whole as you know these animals don't eat animals so why do we need to eat them yeah I mean we could get into different uh, animals and their digestive anatomy but I think probably to keep it simple, I would just leave it at that. But, you know, you're right that, that lions, they have uh, more acidity in the stomach. They have a um, much shorter, um, small intestine. So you know, it, it serves them well to have meat inside their guts for longer. Uh, and they've got more acidity in their stomachs to be able to digest that. Um, they don't have the ability to masticate. You know, they don't move their jaws from side to side. Um, so there's lots of reasons why uh, lions would be very well suited to eat meat. Um, but equally, there's lots of reasons why we would be really well suited to eat vegetables. So, you know, 
I don't want to get into a debate about whether we are actually omnivores or herbivores, but I would say that we have very nice long gastrointestinal tract. We have um, enzymes in our saliva that help us to break down the starches that we enjoy. Uh, we're able to move our jaws from side to side and masticate like herbivores do. So, you know, we should hopefully be well placed to enjoy those veggies and nuts and seeds and, and grains. I'm super interested. Obviously, you are full of knowledge about veganism. Was it through studying? and becoming a doctor that turned you towards veganism or were you vegan before and then you've gone on to gain all of this knowledge about it? So in my medical training we learned about what nutritional deficiencies could do inside the body and we learned a lot about anatomy and communication skills and biochemistry and pharmacology. We didn't really learn a great deal about um, how to optimize health through diet and it was actually only through my own interest in nutrition that I began to look at it more. So I've always wanted to help people feel better. I've always wanted to help them help themselves. And so over the years, I studied lots of stuff like um, psychology, um, CBT, um, brief solution-focused therapeutic approaches. And nutrition became something that I got really interested in after I realized that my husband was doing incredibly well with his marathon training by adopting a plant-based diet. So I wanted to understand some of the science behind why, why he was getting reduced inflammation, why he was improving his recovery times, and he's not medical. And so I felt like it really, it kind of fell to me to try and figure this out. So I began to turn to the literature. I began to look at um, athletic performance and some of the studies around that. But that's not my main interest. My main interest is my patients. And so I thought, well, how does this apply to them? How does it apply to those of us who have heart disease, cancer, diabetes, the biggest killers in the Western world? Could it make a difference? And I realised from looking through some of the study data, epidemiological data of large populations and small data, sort of randomised controlled trials, things like that, I began to realise that there was a lot of information pointing towards the benefits of plant-based diets. Um, and so, yeah, it was after my training that I delved deeper into it. But I'm really thankful for my training because it allowed me to have the ability to look at studies in a more scientific way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I, it makes me think back to what the health and what the health isn't one of the reasons why I turned vegan. I think I was already vegan when I saw it and it it made me kind of understand more about what I knew. And I know What the Health is a, is a documentary that a lot of people see and think, okay, I need to change my eating patterns. But the thing that stuck with me from that, and obviously it's based in the US, so I know their systems there, are, oh, they work very differently over, you know, over here in the UK. But one of the things that stuck with me is how much the medical system over there was in bed with the you know the, the the meat lobbyists and the farmers and the dairy industry and how they were you know someone would come to them with with diabetes and they would say oh you know you need to eat more meat and milk and cheese and stuff it's like crazy. that um how much of that do you think we have as an issue over here um i've never been prescribed by a doctor in the uk to eat more meat um it's <laughs> it's not been something that's happened to me personally but what do you think you know, the UK is like on that side of things. Do you think we're better than America at that? Or do you think we have a quite a big issue here as well? I think in the UK, the National Health Service means that we have less incentive as doctors to take monetary kind of in incentives from, from pharmacology and um, from industry, just because, you know, we want to try and make things value for money because it's paid for by the taxpayer. Um, I mean, I can't speak for what lobbying might go on to government from industry. I just don't know. 
Um, and it's true to say that I imagine that there is clearly um, a combined interest to support our farming industry um, and our fisheries, as well as supporting our health, because the government wants to make sure that um, the businesses um, that we are used to in the UK thrive. So there is, I suppose, in, t in that there is a conflict of interest. But um, yeah, I think in the medical sector, it's probably just more the fact that doctors on the ground don't have training in nutrition and so you know they would they would just take on for the most part popular culture when it comes to dietary advice you know they may well just you know take their advice from magazines and from documentaries unless they they've actually researched it themselves um our culture you know that millennial culture is all about you know keeping thin and looking good for social media and, and we're told that you've got to eat all the protein, you've got to have large protein, small carbs, and that's how you're going to achieve what you want. Um, we know that that's not necessarily true. There's there's way better ways to achieve that, things like calorie deficit and eating a healthier diet and exercising more than you eat effectively. So I think it's really interesting to know that, as you say, that doctors aren't really supposed to, well, not supposed to, but they're not trained to give uh, dietary advice to people. So I think it's good to hear, especially as you say, the NHS isn't necessarily... Uh, working with these lobbyists, I think that's quite a relief. Yeah, I think certainly on an individual doctor level. And, you know, what would be amazing is if we had dietitians and qualified nutritionists attached to doctor surgeries across the country. Um, and I think things are beginning to change. You know, there's there's the um, School of Culinary Medicine, which has been set up recently. There's NutriTank, which is helping medical students to understand the benefits of lifestyle medicine. We've got the plant-based nutrition course out of Winchester University, which is for healthcare professionals and is really good, which I contributed one uh, section four on diabetes. So there is definitely change afoot, but you know these things can take time and there's a lot, um, to be honest, there's a lot, I would say, in academia that can sometimes limit, um, limit progress when it comes to plant-based approaches. Uh, so I think probably the most powerful way forward is to focus on the sustainability aspect of plant-based diets for doctors. And that's what the Royal College of GPs is starting to do as well. So they've got their green impact scheme where they're encouraging GPs to talk about sustainable dietary patterns, because we know that antibiotic resistance, climate change, these are huge issues for human health. But unfortunately, as humans, we tend to have this myopic view. We only really look at what's happening right in front of us right now. Um, but I think it is important to look at the big picture, which is why, thankfully, I think, you know, these, these large organisations like the Royal College of GPs, like the British Dietetic Association and their One Blue Dot campaign, they are now trying to think about, well, how can we sustain humans, healthy humans in the future? It's got to be going more plant-based. So I know I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that things are changing. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think a lot of people do link the plant-based diet to, to malnutrition or not getting enough of your vitamins or not getting enough of that. Whereas actually, as you said through your research, you found so many benefits from a plant-based diet that that actually made you lead your focus more towards that area. What would you say are some of the key benefits of a plant-based diet that you've, you've really locked onto? 
Well, it depends on what we're talking about. So, you know, the book, my book, The Plant Power Doctor, that is all about the health benefits on a personal level. And that focuses on a well-planned whole foods, plant-based approach to eating. So you've got to maximise your fruits, your veggies, your whole grains, your legumes, your herbs and spices, nuts and seeds. Those are the things that will really help to encourage your body towards greater health. And there's a chapter on diabetes, heart disease, cancer, um, hormonal health, plant-based diets for all ages, gut health, immune health. That's all there. And that's the data that I was able to put together for you know the personal benefits. But when we're talking about societal benefits, then it's huge. I mean, plant-based eating is the number one thing that any individual can do to mitigate the effects of climate change, landmass degradation, water loss, species extinction. Um, you know, we, you, you guys probably have watched Seaspiracy. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's loads of ways in which it can be helpful on a larger scale. And that is not even talking about lowering risk of pandemics, lowering risk of antibiotic resistance, which is a huge human health issue. I think the UN says that by, I think, 2050, there'll be an extra 10 million excess deaths from antibiotic-resistant infections. And there may come a time where we can't have routine surgeries anymore because of the risk of infection and the lack of antibiotics to treat it. And believe it or not, that is also coming back to a plant-based diet. So, you know, the more plants we eat, the, the more likely we are to hopefully prevent some of these things in the future. From, a, I guess, a, a medical point of view, how big of a change have you seen in people who have, you know, maybe come to you with, you know, diabetes and maybe that type one or type two, um, things like that, where they've been suffering from ailments. I don't want to say like it can cure cancers and things like that, because that's not definitely my ground to say so. But what have you seen from people who have come to you with, as I say, ailments and they've then transitioned to a plant based diet and seen improvements? Oh, it's it's been really amazing. I'd say in some ways. It's a strange one. I'd say it's nothing short of miraculous sometimes, or at least that's how it feels to me. But I appreciate that, you know, there's there's a lot of healthy scepticism. And I used to be sceptical too. But when I see patients with a blood pressure of 180 over 120 go down to a blood pressure of 120 over 80 in the space of less than two weeks, just because they changed their diet, it really gets me thinking. And, you know, that's one of the number one risk factors for heart disease. Um, you know, when I see type 2 diabetic patients who have average blood sugar readings well up into the hundreds, uh, going down to normal range within, you know, a few weeks, just through dietary changes, I think, you know, it makes my jaw drop and it makes me realise the power that a, you know, a, a good nutritious diet can have. Um, you know, when it comes to cancer, we know that the World Cancer Research Fund tells us that fruits, vegetables, whole grains and legumes are the absolute cornerstone of a cancer preventing diet. I can't say that it would cure any kind of cancer. Nobody can. Um, but I can say that having read books like Radical Remissions by Dr. Kelly Turner, I've been really inspired by some of the stories of patients and how they've taken their health into their own hands and, and changed their lifestyles, which would include, at least from those cases, um, you know, a plant-rich or even a plant-predominant diet. So I think that there are health benefits to be had uh, when you have the mental bandwidth and you know the, the budget um, to think about what you're going to do to help improve your situation. Having said that, 
plant-based approaches can be some of the, the, the cheapest foods available. So if you're able to you know, cook or if you have the ability, if you have an oven, if you have a fridge, um, then you know, buying in bulk these, these items like um, rice and, and um, chickpeas and lentils and vegetables and fruits can be much cheaper than having, um, having other, other products that you might otherwise have like um, expensive meats or things like that. Yeah, as, as well as um, physical health, which we touched on quite a bit, there's also, I think, such an intrinsic link with your mental health and your diet as well. And I know that you talk a lot about, you know, mind, body, soul, all being connected and you do a lot of work with meditation and all the psychology around that. Um, and some of our audience members were interested in mental health and veganism and diet culture all around this way of eating. And I just wanted to touch on what experience, experiences you've had with that, because I know that some people do do find it quite stressful moving to a vegan diet, not knowing what they can and can't eat, the perception that all vegans are really skinny and all of that sort of jazz, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really big topic because, you know, we can talk about um, things like disordered eating and the history of, of disordered eating and, and what a lot of dietitians and nutritionists say about plant-based approaches. Um, and we can talk about um, some of the mental health benefits of eating more plants. So I guess if I, if I start off by talking about mental health, I think if you're finding, if you're finding yourself stressed and anxious about what to eat, then take a step back and consider your mental health above all else. Um, I would say that there's a lot of controversy around it when it comes to things like eating disorder clinics because there's a lot of specialist uh, dietitians that work with people with eating disorders who say that veganism could fuel eating disorders for that reason because you're creating lots of boundaries around what you're eating. However, some of the data that we have, although it's limited, doesn't actually support that decision. And in fact, sometimes it's actually actively harmful to tell someone that they should no longer be vegan if it's something that's really important to them because they have an eating disorder. So what the research that I have read and having discussed this with dietitians and nutritionists myself, what the data seems to show is that it's really important to try and tease out and be super honest with yourself when you are adopting a plant-based diet and you need to tease out why it is that you're doing it. If your primary motivation is to lose weight, if your primary motivation is to have like a bikini body, then really really think carefully about if this is the way that you want to go because you know it it can sometimes lead you down a path of of feeling as though you have to restrict everything and getting very anxious and worried about it if your primary motivation is general health um, if it's environmental health if it's um, animal compassion if you're if you're hoping to improve a chronic disease that you're suffering with then that's actually quite different because your motivation is coming from somewhere else entirely. And some of the data that I've read suggests that people who are semi-vegetarian actually at higher risk of eating disorders than people who are vegan. And trying to tease that out is quite difficult, but some of the theories around that are because often when somebody is vegan, it actually becomes a, a kind of... Um, a way of life that is very value-driven. So somebody who... Uh, potentially has been suffering from an eating disorder and then decides to go vegan for the animals or for the environment um, or for another reason, 
other than weight loss and weight restriction, find that actually it gives them a certain amount of food freedom because they feel as though they're doing something for the greater good or they're doing something for, for a reason that's greater than the impulse for food restriction, if that makes sense. So, it, so it's actually a really complicated area, um, but I think the bottom line comes down to being honest about your why, being honest with yourself as well as those around you, um, because you know sometimes vegan um, approaches can actually be really beneficial for people suffering from eating disorders. And anecdotally, I've heard from lots of people that say that it actually saved them. They feel like it saved their life. They had previously suffered from bulimia or anorexia and thinking about why their food matters over and above themselves was actually tremendously freeing for them. So it is nuanced. Yeah, it's interesting because there's obviously a few ways of looking at it. You know, you can look at it from that way that we mentioned that you feel limited and you're stressed and you don't know what it is to eat. But actually, as you say, you know, connecting with everything around you and being more in touch with it from a, you know, a, a mental point of view where you're thinking, OK, you know, I'm eating this from here and I'm not eating that because it's all of that. It can be good for you. I mean, we, we've talked a lot recently about this kind of notion of I guess not eating what you want, but it's, I think people are calling it like intuitive eating, whereas they're probably remaining on a plant-based diet, you know, 90 to 95% of the time, but they are occasionally veering away to that because they're saying that their body is giving them a feeling that they, it's the right thing to do to eat like a, you know, a piece of salmon or, you know, something. I, I, I've not really heard actually people moving away from pescatarianism with this intuitive eating idea. Um, often it is fish that people are leading back to because they feel it's giving them health benefits. What are your, what are your thoughts on that just on the whole, really? I think it's important not to confuse the concept of intuitive eating with different dietary patterns. So it's a tough one. I, I, I haven't read the book about intuitive eating, but my understanding is that it's about actually listening to hunger cues um, and um, becoming more aware of, of what, you know, what your body's hunger signals are telling you. So rather than forcing a certain amount of um, restriction when it comes to things like fasting or, or intermittent fasting um, or um, telling yourself that you can't have a certain food because it's uh, it's sort of bad for you, telling yourself you have to eat a certain kind of food because it's good for you. I think intuitive eating probably does have a really great role to play. Um, and I think diet culture tends to stop us from getting back in tune with our bodies and what we're actually supposed to be um, having because we're, we're always overthinking like, what it is that we're supposed to be eating and why. Um, it sounds good, but I think nutritionally... Um, there's no reason why if you're getting, you know, all of the things that you need from a plant rich diet that you have to eat like a piece of salmon. Um, if you want to eat it, eat it. But there's no sort of physiological reason if you are taking you know, flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts for plant based sources of omega threes. If you've got for your extra insurance policy, like an algae oil based supplement for your ready made long chain omega three fatty acids then, you know, if you fancy a piece of salmon, have it, but it's not that you necessarily need it for nutritional benefits. Yeah, because you said earlier, obviously, there's things that you can get replacements of. So you mentioned the omega-3. You mentioned earlier in the show uh, B12. Um, that's the one thing that you say you can't really get 
like naturally from a, a vegan diet where are the best places because i know i eat so much nutritional yeast that i probably have a <laughs> uh, a, a massive overflowing yeah uh, we definitely we do we yeah. definitely i think we eat a huge portion between the two of us but there's also vitamin d which i wanted to touch on as well as b12 as well because some uh vitamin d is from sheep's wool and lichen or i don't know if i'm gonna say it right but and there's a lot of vitamin d in cereal that i've been caught out on a fair few times as well Okay, so yeah, I think B12 is made by microbes. And so um, there are some microbes in our gut that can make B12, but they, they're too far down for us to be able to absorb those nutrients effectively. Um, the B12 that we would get from animal products have essentially um, been ingested by the animal either through water or through um, the, the what they've eaten or the soil that they've kind of eaten with grass for example uh, or to be honest the vast majority of meats are actually factory farmed in which case they would just have um, b12 supplementation in their feed uh, which we then take in through their muscles so really the vast majority of the meat that we eat will be reared that way so you may as well cut out the middleman and have the b12 in supplement form yourself you only need a tiny amount but you do need it it is important um and like i say you know it's it's easiest i think probably just to take a supplement to know that you've got enough your body can store vitamin b12 for a number of years so you may be on a plant-based diet with high levels of b12 and not think you need a supplement because you'll be your levels are fine for a long time but after a few years they could drop suddenly so it is important to just maintain those levels um as you know over the years as best you can um also many people have vitamin b12 deficiency who are omnivorous in fact the vast majority of the people who have vitamin B12 deficiency in the world are omnivorous. You're especially um, likely to be B12 deficient if you're over the age of 50, um, if you are diabetic and on certain medications that could lower your absorption of B12, if you're on stomach acid suppressing medications, for example. Uh, these are all things that could lead to a vitamin B12 deficiency regardless of what you eat. So I think that's a really important to make, a point to make. Um, and as I say, you only need a very small amount. Um, you can take a, a supplement. You can get it from, like you say, nutritional yeast or fortified plant milks, um, you know, margarines, uh, things like that, uh, cereals. Um, but I think just to know that you've got enough, I would recommend a supplement. Another topic I wanted to touch on was calcium from milk. A lot of there's a lot of debate around bringing up babies, children as vegans because they need their calcium from cow's milk. What what do you have to say about that? Where else can babies get their calcium from? Because I know we really we don't need cow's milk. We're not baby cows. When we're babies, we get our milk from our parents. Um, but I'd be interested to hear it more from a medical point of view in terms of calcium. Cow's milk has been an important source of nutrients for Northern Europeans for a long time. Um, you know, you can imagine through times of nutritional scarcity, it's been really helpful to have the ability to drink the milk from a cow. Um, you don't need to do that. And it's perfectly acceptable and um, logical to rear your child on a healthy plant-based diet but you know when it comes to calcium I think one of the main things to think about is you know is your child a fussy eater is your child somebody that you know that would run around and play over actually sitting down and eating a meal and if so it is important to just think about okay well what, what am I giving them um, 
Fortunately, there are loads of great sources of calcium. Um, in fact, the calcium from cruciferous vegetables like kale and broccoli is actually potentially more bioavailable than the calcium from the milk of a cow. Will your child eat broccoli or kale? <laughs> All right, you know, that's a question you've got to ask yourself. Um, you know, things like tahini are absolutely fantastic. As long as your child doesn't have a sesame seed allergy, then tahini is brilliant because it is really calcium rich. Um, you know, almond butters have got great sources of calcium as well. Um, you know, it's about offering your child a lovely variety of these calcium rich foods. Um, and, you know, they'll be getting plenty of calcium that way. I wanted I wanted to ask you about your like journey into kind of social media as well because I mean I don't know of many doctors who I guess are as prevalent as yourself on social media um, and I think just getting involved with that uh, side of being able to have conversations with people and you know I guess offer advice to people on social media um, firstly how did you get into it and secondly do you think that maybe is you know we, we've seen over the last year how like zoom has played such a huge part in um everyone's lives and you know just conversations like this you know at the minute we're on google hangouts talking to yourself you know we're all in different parts of the country is social media maybe the future of like general practicing in this country it's i've got mixed feelings because i love my job so i'm a senior partner at a busy nhs surgery and the pandemic has changed how i work hugely and now, rather than seeing people face to face, I am still seeing people face to face frequently, but far less. And it's usually been um, on video calls or phone calls. And I feel like it's it's definitely a an inferior way of communicating face like rather than face to face. I really, really appreciate seeing my patients face to face. Um, picking up on cues that they don't tell me. Picking up on. Um, kind of simple things like you know a mole on their arm or the way that they smell or the way that they walk into the room or the clothes that they're wearing um these give me clues about their general health mental health well-being and i feel like i haven't dealt with their problems as well as i would have done face to face when i'm dealing with them over the phone or on a video call so when it comes to when it comes to medicine, yes, I think, you know, things are going more digital. They are going more online. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing overall. Um, having said that, I think medical education is really important. And that's why I went on to social media. I think it has it's really uh, you know, it's really empowerful, uh, powerful and impactful for people to be able to learn stuff on Instagram, for example. But there's also a lot of misinformation that can come up. And so it's again a really difficult thing because if you see 10 articles saying one thing or 10 influencers saying one thing and you see a doctor you know saying a different thing it's hard for you to know what to believe it's hard for you to know who to trust but that's really why I decided to start my Instagram account is to offer people the uh, education and the information that they were missing and do it in a way that could hopefully really be accessible to them um, and that's what I'm so passionate about which is why I started doing it but yeah, I'm not I'm not their doctor online, so it's quite difficult because people will often come to me and ask me medical questions about themselves, about their family members, and I can't give personalized medical advice online. You know, I'm not it wouldn't be ethical to do so and I'm not licensed to do so. So, it's a fine line, but I think I'm so passionate about spreading the word about holistic health, about lifestyle, about plant-based nutrition, 
And I think it allows me to reach so many more people. You know, I've got nearly 3,000 patients that I work with, you know, day to day in my NHS practice. Um, but, you know, when you're on Instagram, you can reach many, many thousands of people potentially, which is which is just lovely. Yeah, it's so great to have you out there as a voice just for vegan health and nutrition. And obviously you have your book as well, which has been number one in two categories on Amazon. I'm definitely going to be ordering it because I'd love to learn a little bit more about this because hands up, I don't know loads about nutrition. I don't know loads about health and that kind of jazz I, I went vegan for the animals um but after speaking to you and following you on instagram i'm actually i've gained so much more interest in it so but congrats on the book thank you and you just offer us so much information on so many different platforms um and it's great and it's great you're so passionate about it as well oh thank you missy and it, i want to make it accessible and people don't have to buy the book they can go to my website and there's a lot of great free information on there but the book is something that I've spent months and years sort of thinking about and trying to make it accessible for people because I want people to be able to use it in their kitchen. I want people to have it on their coffee table. I want people who've got relatives who are sick to think about buying it as a gift. You know, I want it to be good for vegans who are wanting to improve their health, but I want it to be good for omnivores who, who want to improve their health too. So I've really tried to make it as inclusive as possible um, and even colour-coded it. You know, there's pretty pictures. <laughs> Amazing. It's colour-coded. <laughs> you know, it's, it's there to hopefully be browsed through and get inspiration from, so... Yeah, it it was a passion project. It still is. And, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled that it's been received well. And, you know, I want it to be a grower. You know, I want it to be something that people will, will read and love and then recommend to their friends. So I hope that you enjoy it. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I hope that it, it stays something that's popular. I'm sure it definitely will. And you mentioned your website as well. So if, so our followers can have access to that. Where should, what should they type into Google to get to your website? Well, they can type in GemmaNewman.com or they can type in PlantPowerDoctor.com. It takes you to the same website. If our followers want to find you on Instagram, you know, they should already be following you. But if they want to find you on Instagram, <laughs> where should they look? Uh, Plant Power Doctor. It's been so great talking to you this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. What an incredible insight that was from Dr. Gemma Newman. Yeah, I've certainly learned a lot this week, but if you want to hear more from Gemma, then head over to her Instagram at plantpowerdoctor. You can even go buy her book, The Plant Powered Doctor, available at penguinbooks.co.uk. This show was produced and edited by Callum Goddard Mocklow for Apricot Audio. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, available on all podcast platforms such as Apple, Spotify and Acast. And if you want to keep up to date with all the latest happenings, then remember to follow us both on Instagram, at IzzyTheVegan and at Ben's Vegan Kitchen. See you later!